I thought it's only right that we start this off with a tweet of yours. So you've Okay. <laughs> so you tweeted to those that think I am posting due to my political bias. News for you. It is because of my upbringing. I was taught not to lie, and I got fed up with the lies, misrepresentations, obfuscation, censorship, and imbecilic fact-checking. I actually donated to the Biden campaign. So my question that I have for you, Dr. Malone, do you regret donating to the Biden campaign? <laughs> so you were the one that was asking that question. <laughs> no, no. Actually, was- actually, I do. I do now. You do. I was going to go back to the upbringing and talk not to lie, but if you want to unpack that. Well, I, I, I try not to lie, you know, and, and that's part of my thing is uh, to call it straight. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, we have hopes and fears, and so do I. I'm just human, the same as you. And uh, although I don't have a gold medal in jujitsu, so um, I'm afraid that <laughs> no, you excel I, I, way beyond in a lot of things. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, yeah, but we all we all put our pants on, right? Um, and, <laughs> That's uh, true. Uh, so, um, so I I had hopes uh, with the election. And uh, I overlooked, you know, we had a very limited spectrum of options in mm. the end. And uh, um, the cynics might say that both parties are um, remarkably similar. They, they uh, put on, the, I, I, I live close to D.C. because I have to work with D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, I understand DC politics and I've spent time on the Hill talking to legislators. And even in this current, I can say to the Aussies, uh, I even had a good long chat with uh, some senior staff in, in Nancy Pelosi's office, who is the speaker of the house uh, about my concerns about these vaccines and how the CDC was managing the situation. Mm. Um, uh, and I had high hopes uh, for this administration, but uh, over time, I, I'm getting more and more cynical about whether there really are substantive differences. A lot of the things that I was critical about for the Trump administration's management of this crisis, um, I, I can't, I'm kind of coming around to the opinion that the Biden administration's management has been even worse. Right. Uh, that's, that's uh that's that's not a very pretty thing to say. Uh, and in terms of to, to get to the heart of the tweet and the topic, um, the the you know increasingly the term legacy media as opposed to uh, social media in the podcast community, which I I've been brought into the podcast community consequent to that dark horse podcast with Brett Weinstein. That's just gone super viral. Yes. And uh, I had no idea when, when I was invited to go uh, travel to Portland and be on Brett's broadcast, I, I really had no idea who Brett was, what, what the dark web was, 
what the podcasters were doing. Um, I was completely naive about that world. Not and the dark web. I, I don't, is, we, we don't sit in a dark web. <laughs> Not the dark web, I hope. Well, the, the, as it's defined by folks like Brett, yes. the dark web is the space in between the two political parties. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not, you know, uh, um, blockchain protected, uh, um, uh, Q, QAnon uh, crazy world, <laughs> right. uh, you know, in 4chan. Yes, um, yes. It defines this, uh, this space of of discussion and intellectual world that is neither left nor right yes yes it's it's the interesting place right um mm. it, it's this space in between where we can where where it's okay to discuss ideas like you know back in the old days yes uh, right yes before all the thought and ideas were all controlled and uh so so for me, that was a, a huge uh, moment of uh, an epiphany. Mm. It, it was a moment of epiphany that this, this forum and this media exists. What, what happened that, so, so to get to the tweet, um, I've been, the, for whatever reason, conservative media has embraced me. Yeah. And uh, which is rather odd because I have been lifelong progressive, grown up in the central coast of California, um, you know, and uh, I, I always had my own biases. I'd never watched Fox News. My father watched Fox News. He was totally indoctrinated by Fox News until the day of his death. It's all, you know, uh, and um and I, I wouldn't go there. And yet I've been on Glenn Beck, Tucker Carlson, and uh, frequently on Steve Bannon's war room. These are the people that want to discuss these issues. These are the people that um, these, these con, you know, quote, labeled conservatives yeah. are the ones that seem to care deeply about these issues having to do with personal freedom and rights. And I, I, for me, it's been a huge um, cognitive dissonance, intellectual paradox to try to make sense of what I'm seeing and experiencing. And um, if I can probably to your audience, the name Glenn Beck may not mean anything, but he's a well-known uh, conservative radio host, very conservative in the United States. And um, apparently he doesn't usually have guests on repeatedly. And he had me on, I think, three successive broadcasts for a span of over three hours. And at the end of it, he said to me, um, and, you know, he would try to take me off into conservative uh, conspiracy land right. from time to time. And I always kind of brought it back and didn't want to go there. Um, uh, but he said to me at the end, something profound. He said, Robert, I've really enjoyed these uh, three sessions with you um, because uh, everything you said uh, was not about, you said it, it was not political. What you said was not political. Yes. Um, and for Glenn Beck, who is, his brand is, you know, fire-breathing conservative. Um, and uh, to say that was 
profound in it when it when it when he said it. It was one of these moments uh, where where I just kind of went, oh, there's something going on here that's different, mm. and it's bothered me ever since. And and I think that what so another thing, another example along that, we have a, a guy here named uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, yes. People call him Bobby Kennedy. Yes. Okay. His father was assassinated. His uncle was assassinated. He fully believes that they were assassinated by the CIA. Okay. Um, he is vaccine harmed. He can hardly speak in public because of the laryngospasm that he has that was probably consequent to influenza vaccines. It's one of the common adverse events associated with influenza vaccination in the elderly mm. or in the adults, I should say. He's not elderly. Well, he is a little bit now. He's a little <laughs> older than I am. He is also being embraced by the Republicans, mm. which is a profound statement for a Kennedy, uh, you know, the bastion of, of liberalism, yeah. New England liberalism. For Kennedy to be embraced by the Republicans and vice versa is a profound thing. And what, what I think I'm seeing is a what could become a historic political realignment mm. that is not left versus right. I, I'm, I'm trying to come to grips with it. People come with, with their different polls. Some people say it's good versus bad. There are those that think what's going on is truly evil. Um, uh, I think personally that the tension here mm -hmm. is between collectivism and individual rights. Yeah. And that, that cuts across left versus right. That's different. Um, you can be progressive and in favor of individual rights, and you can be um, right wing and in favor of uh, the collective in some way, although not so much. It's similar to that phrase that gets toted around over here. It's think locally, but act globally. I, I live it. Okay. So I, I absolutely live that reality. Yeah. Um, I live in uh, the, the metaphor here uh, is uh, red state and blue state, mm -hmm. blue state being democratic, red state being Republican. Um, and I live in a purple state. Virginia. It's uh, kind of on the edge. Um, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee and the, and the Army of the South and, and the Army of the North fought it out right through this valley that I live in, um, all the way down to Richmond. Uh, my great, great, great grandfather got all shot to heck um, uh, fighting the Northern troops uh, defending Richmond. Uh, he was from Alabama. Right. So that's, you know, but I grew up in, in California, so I was kind of outside of that whole world. But I live in a purple state in a red county. Okay, so I'm mm -hmm. surrounded by, by pretty much card-carrying conservatives. Right. And I got to get along with everybody. And I don't have the luxury. You know, I got to buy my hay for my horses. I got to mm -hmm. go down to the feed store. Um, I got to get along with everybody. And I, and um and I, and I'm absolutely committed to what you just said. I, to the extent possible, I hire local labor. Yeah. I buy from local, local companies. Uh, I do my business locally. I only, if I have to, do I go to Amazon or, or other, you know, large outside entities. Um, 
And, uh, and, you know, I have the, the young lady that helps us manage the farm, uh, her, her whole family, extended family live within about 10 miles of here. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's, I, I think that that logic of, uh, think globally and act locally and buy locally is, is, uh, super sound. And there are those kind of in your generation more here in the States that are getting fed up with a lot of what's going on. And uh, they're creating these enclaves where they form cooperative buying, buying units and uh, buy land. And they're not communes, mm. but, uh, but they're, they're setting up communities uh, where, where they are able to uh, like, like many religious uh, groups do yeah. where, where they're able to live by their values and, and not have to be uh, um, forced to comport with uh, um, community norms that they don't feel comfortable with. Let's say. When I was reading that tweet, one particular line stood out to me. And that was, I was taught not to lie. And could you just unpack that a little bit? Because you seem to have not only a genius mind that you do have in developing the technology that you did and working in the field that you do and the leadership that you must have uh, being in your position, but a very interesting pass as you've just mentioned just then a a historic one that allows you to see things from different perspectives it allows you to sit down the center and not be conformed to either sides whether you were in the past or or whatever the case may be it seems that like you've you've come to a line to a center position so when you say I was taught not to lie, what was instilled in you, do you believe, that allows you to sit in this center core and be absolutely as honest as possible within that space? Well, that's an interesting question. As we were talking before you hit record, um, this is I live on the fifth small farm that my wife and I have uh, rebuilt. Uh, I was a farmer and a carpenter before I was uh, a physician and a scientist. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at shoeing horses uh, and learned how to shoe horses on draft horses. I, I breed horses and run it as a business. It's not a hobby. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a pretty decent rider uh, in dressage world. I'm a level three rider. So I can't keep up with my stallion. Now he's at level four and heading North, uh, um, so we have to hire a, a really high end trainer now, but um, that's the way it is. So I, you know, like we were saying, I, my, I got two steel chainsaws and both of them, I've, I've probably burned through four or five different bars already. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I get out and mow the lawn with my zero turn mower cause we manage 50 acres <laughs> and, and yeah, I got a tractor and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that does have a tendency to keep, you're grounded. Mm. Um, virology is actually a very old discipline. Right. And, uh, and it's been around a long time, but it's a niche. Yeah. How did I get 
so fascinated by it. It it goes back to my time as an undergraduate at University of California Davis, which is pro- arguably the top ag school in the nation. Right. Uh, so your friends there in Australia that are in the agriculture business will recognize the contribution of University of California Davis to viticulture and ethnology. Um, uh, those that are in uh, um, milk production will under will recognize the contributions of UC Davis. Likewise, poultry, mm-hmm. um, certainly equine and equine reproduction. So that's that's where I went to school and took a degree in biochemistry, which is a pretty hard degree. Uh, you know, it's it's not chemical engineering, but uh, it was about it certainly burned me up. Um, <laughs> And, and I spent two years as a total bench rat uh, in a laboratory that uh, was focused on breast cancer and the role of mouse mammary tumor virus, which is a retrovirus in breast cancer. And while I was there, it just so happened that uh, one of my two mentors, uh, Murray Gardner was one and Robert Cardiff was the other. Right. Bob Cardiff is a hardcore pathologist uh, with, uh, you know, he's one of the world's experts in uh, the, the pathology of uh, transgenic mouse models. So right. he's often used as a reference for that. And he had just come off of a fellowship uh, um, sabbatical at UCSF in the laboratory, these two characters named uh, Bishop and Varmus that had just received the Nobel Prize for discovering oncogenes. And uh, Murray Gardner, my other mentor, had been the founder of the Cancer Center at University of California, uh, University of Southern California. And then he'd been recruited up to UC Davis. And, and the story goes, the reason was, is the reason they successfully recruited him was that his wife had a dream. She's living, she's stuck in LA. And she really wanted a farm with a red barn and a pond. And so for, cause she wanted to do sheep and, and uh, um, sheep wool and all that kind of stuff, something Aussies can appreciate. Yes, yes. And uh, so, so the story with Murray is they recruited him by fine. Cause they couldn't really afford to recruit him, but they found a farm with a red barn and a pond that she no. could have her sheep on. And, and that's, that's how he came up. It's part of why I am who I am, frankly, and live the life that I did do mm. is because I had these role models of, of at, at this ag school and particularly Murray Gardner, who, who combined living on a farm and being a world-class virologist mm. connected. Uh, so for instance, when I was an undergraduate, this guy named Luc Montagnier used to come to the lab from time to time. Mm. Uh, you may or may not recognize that Luc is a Nobel Prize winner for the discovery of HIV. Um, when I was in the lab, uh, these Murray and this guy named Preston Marks, who was a, a veterinary virologist, uh, um, just found that there was an immunodeficiency syndrome in the monkeys at the Primate Research Center. Right. And uh, and they isolated the virus uh, caused by this. I remember the lab meeting. In, I can never forget the lab meeting when they showed the first electron micrographs of a retrovirus that caused immunodeficiency in primates. That was revolutionary. It was published in Lancet. It, it predated the discovery of the AIDS virus. And uh, 
Murray actually traveled with Bob Gallo to the pastor. It's immortalized in an HBO film. I don't know if you guys get it down in Australia called and the band played on. Um, and Murray, Murray brought the virus back in his pocket, quite literally through customs in the States. You wouldn't do that in Australia. anymore. <laughs> no. I guarantee. Um, no. <laughs> and, and I, and I remember him, he was, you know, for a, a guy that was in his early sixties, he was practically dancing down the halls when he came back from, from Paris and de Gaulle um, saying, I've got the virus that causes AIDS in my pocket. And uh, <laughs> so. That's fantastic. So, um, and, oh, that's a story. I mean, there was a, a major cat fight because Bob Gallo was claiming he would isolated the virus first, but in fact, what he did was he re-isolated the virus that that Murray and he had brought back from the Pasteur. And he claimed that he was the original discoverer. This was a, a multi-decade long cat fight. Oh. And uh, so this is what I grew up with. I mean, this is my formative years mm. uh, in, in my mid-20s uh, is this heady brew of... Uh, you know, surrounded by veterinarians and primatologists and pathologists and virologists and, and working on vaccines uh, for AIDS. And, uh, you know, my, my hero uh, was a, a guy named Don Francis, um, who, who you, you may know played a yeah. key role. I mean, I was at Davis, San Francisco's just down the street. Mm. Um, Murray, Murray was being... This is another fun story. I got so many stories about those days. Um, Murray Murray was brought in. I by love the how your stories. In- I love how your stories are just so globally impactful and they're just brilliant <laughs> stories. <laughs> Murray Murray, honest to God, back in the day, Murray was uh, brought in as a consultant to the cat houses up in Nevada uh, for how they should manage the risk of the uh, ladies of the night uh, practicing their trade um in the days of aids um uh it, it was an amazing time so this is what i grew up with in all of the politics around that mm. um i mean the lab there's a dark side to this too uh murray was threatened by bob gallo that he'd never get another grant if he kept working with the uh, french virus um the laboratory was the first one to show that the isolate from San Francisco and the isolate from France and the isolate supposedly from Bob Gallo's lab, that the one from San Francisco was different. And the two that uh, Bob and, and Luc Montagnier and colleagues believed that they had separately isolated were exactly the same virus. Mm. Uh, and there was a decision not to publish that because of the political implications. Um, so this this is you ask you know why viruses and farming and and all of that all comes together. Well, I got to say it's it's how I was brought up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like just like my my uh, you know my mother uh, from who grew up on a on a sheep farm, honest to God, in uh, Eastern Oregon, uh, where where they would run the sheep, uh, you know up and down the hills, uh, depending on the season for pasture, um, uh, that, you know, she, she grew up in a town that's now a ghost town, mm. Western ghost town, um, and, uh, grew, grew up 
uh, with this kind of, uh, you know, deep moral bedrock mm. uh, that, that comes from a rural background. Uh, I personally, um, I think that, that here in the States, we lost our soul a little bit when there was a decision in the 60s uh, to, the, the term is used, get big or get out with farming. When, when Wall Street money came in, took over the farms, bought out the small farmer, and uh, we all, everybody went into debt to buy John Deere equipment, and, uh, and you lost the small farm. And I think the small farm, in a lot of ways, was the, the beating heart yeah. uh, of, of uh, America and, um, and American innovation also. Uh, and I'm, I'm partially influenced because I used to breed draft horses. We have this religious community here called the Amish. I don't know if you've got them in Australia. Um, Not as big as population, but yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there are certain things they don't do. Everybody laughs at them because they think they're Luddites, uh, you know, and they don't drive around in cars. They have their own logic. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you when you go on to a Amish farm and they're the last people in the United States that understand how to make a small farm work. Um, and uh, when you go onto an Amish farm, all the kids are working. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a job. Mm. Um, it's very different. Uh, so you ask why, why am I me? Um, cause, cause uh, this is the world I choose to live in. I couldn't live in Manhattan. It's amazing. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't live in Sydney. <laughs> now, trust me, mate. You would not want to be in Sydney right now. These lockdowns are horrible. There's sections of the city where essentially are called LGAs, where you can't go out for more than an hour's walk. Everyone in the city has to wear a mask. Our borders are closed. Families are being torn apart. Our suicide rate is actually nearly double the COVID deaths over here. I, I recall Brett Weinstein on the Joe Rogan experience last June state that America's should go into a strict lockdown. Well, Brett, I can tell you right now that that is a horrible, horrible idea. The suicide rate is a direct correlation, has a direct correlation to the lockdowns. Lockdowns are... I can't, I can't, and I don't understand why these politicians act this way. They can see that it, it doesn't work, and I just don't understand it. I was just looking for the reference, and since you follow my Twitter account, yes, you'll find there's a major study there that uh, will be very useful to you, mm-hmm. uh, that it's, it's a major think tank study that looks at the economic impacts of lockdown and the logic of lockdown and the effect of lockdown on deaths mm. in 40 different nations. And uh, it comes to the clear and unequivocal conclusion that it is a very bad idea. Yes. Um, yes. So there's my gift to you. That's, uh, you know, I, I had been, you're not the first Aussie to contact me about this topic. Uh-huh. And uh, so that was, I sought that study out. And it, frankly, it's a gift to you and your colleagues. I wanted Definitely. to make sure that you guys could download that. 
So the the link is there. I'll grab it and I'll put it out. I'll give it to our team to push that out as soon as possible. Now, I don't understand why, as you said, the data is right there. I look at the data as much as I can to make an analytical decision as to what to do, right? And I, I respect everyone that makes that choice. But if we're looking at this data, why are they making the decisions that go against science, against these data? I just don't understand that. All, all across the world, folks like you and me are looking at all these things and going, this just doesn't add up. What the heck is going on here? Mm. And uh, let's speak about the, the um, Great Reset and the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all that kind of stuff. I try to stay out of that. Because, uh, you know, I don't know anything about Klaus Schwab. I've never met him. Bill Gates doesn't call me over to his house. I've never <laughs> been to, to Davos. Um, I don't know these people. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what's in their heart or their soul or their brains or anything mm. else. Um, but what I do know is just what you just said. There's a whole lot of this doesn't make sense. Yes, 100%. And as you mentioned earlier, those amazing mentors of yours, if only we could be so lucky, uh, they did incredible things, not only for America, but for the rest of the world. And did you look up to them wanting to create something similar or did you just stumble upon mRNA technology. I, th- I believe you were 28 at the time. Okay. Uh, mate, so, when I was 28, yeah, 28, I tell you right now, I'm not creating mRNA technology. That's that's a genius um, level as you are, as you are. <laughs> well, that's kind. Um, I, I really feel uncomfortable talking about these things generally. Yeah. Um, uh, Why is that? Uh, um. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's so it's so egotistical. Mm-hmm. Um, just the same reason that I'm not comfortable talking about, you know, people. I always almost thank you for not forcing me to go down the. What did you do that justifies you uh, saying that you were the inventor, you know, and, and establish your legitimacy? I thank you so much for not yeah. forcing me to do that for the I don't know fiftieth time. Uh, I I hate. I'm, I'm, I'm generally a modest person. I, I, I don't, I've never sought the attention. Yeah. Um, I, I like to live a quiet life with my wife and my family and it's by choice. Mm. Uh, I've seen how this insane quest for fame and fortune and immortality distorts people. Yes. I've seen it again and again and again. And, uh, I don't know how many times I've run into a senior professor uh, that that the words come out of their mouth. I only wish I'd spent more time with my kids, mm. uh, you know, when when they're older. And for some reason, my wife and I, maybe it's part of what brought us together. People talk about folks being old souls, yes. even when they're young. Yes. And we were kind of old souls. Uh, and. Uh, I had these odd drivers. I, I was born at the University Hospital in Stanford uh, in the late 50s at a time with Sputnik and all that kind of stuff and the new emphasis on science and education in the United States. Mm. And 
I was the son of a school teacher and an electrical engineer trained at Stanford. And for them, it was all about the mind. And, uh, and I was precocious and they took me to be IQ tested at Stanford. I, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, frankly. I, my grandson is, is our grandson is, is very bright. And, uh, his mother was talking to us. uh, uh, He's, he's four now was talking to us when he was very young and saying, Oh, look how he can say these words already and everything. And he's so brilliant. And I was like, Megan, don't go there. Okay. Don't put that burden on him. Okay. Um, so, so I got IQ tested and I was kind of off the charts and then I got, you know, all these expectations laid on me by my folks and my mother in particular. Mm. And, uh, and it's an odd situation. I don't mean to sound like I'm whining, but uh, to be told, you know, basically set up that if you don't win the Nobel Prize, you're a failure and you haven't met your expectations um, of your parents is is a kind of a heavy thing. Uh, and, um, you know, Tiger mom hardly even scratches that. Now, she's passed away. And so has my father. And and they had their own special kind of crazy uh, that that. Uh, as we all do, you know, it took as me a while do. as we all, all parent, all families have their own special crazy, I think. Um, yes. and I'm not to say that we're not perfect. We're perfect. But, um, so I had, I had all of that laid on me and then I rebelled against it and I became a rock climber and a hiker. And, uh, let's just say gently, I grew up in the seventies in the central coast of California and leave it at that. Um, uh, if you follow what I'm saying, okay. Uh, right. Um, okay. Uh, and, and I rebelled against, uh, being the perfect son. I, when I, honest to God, in my bedroom, my parents painted red, white, and blue, and they, they were strong supporters of Richard Nixon and, uh, Goldwater before that. And, and I had a poster on the back of my door when I was a young teen uh, that was an, a Richard Nixon campaign poster. Um, that, that was, you know, kind of where I came from. Uh, so I, I, you know, rebelled against that and uh, met this uh, young woman, uh, 15 at the time, uh, right when I came off of hiking the Muir Trail. Um, so I did the mirror trail when I was 15 and then came home deciding that, uh, what I needed was a good woman, um, at the, at the tender <laughs> the age hike of 16. was that hard? The hike was that hard? <laughs> it, it's a, it's a pretty rigorous hike to, to knock off in six weeks. Uh, you start at Mount Whitney and you end up, um, in, in wanting uh, a woman in, and to, to in, settle in, down. <laughs> yeah, that was it. And, um, and I, and I met this young woman and we hit it off and uh, we both love horses Amazing. and, uh, and we got married. Uh, for, we eloped and lived in the hills uh, below Lake Tahoe for a while. And uh, so that's, that's our story. We've, we've kind of been together and it, you know, I was in construction and you can find a link on my LinkedIn profile of this fantastic house that I built or helped build. I was head a foreman of the shingling crew and it's a considered an architectural masterpiece in Santa Barbara. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing to look at, but, uh, 
the, the shingles are all swirls and it's, it's an amazing structure. But after that, I kind of said to myself, do you want to spend the rest of your life hanging out with construction guys? And the answer was no, not really. Uh, and so I went back to school and, and I was on fire. Uh, I just, you know, I wanted to make something of myself. I won't tell you the context, but let's say I had an epiphany on uh, New Year's Day, 1980. Um, and uh, um, uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I just decided that, uh, you know, I, I didn't like the person I was. And I really wanted to do something with my life. And uh, so that's what's driven me uh, and drove me during that whole decade. Uh, I had, I, it was so wicked hard to get into medical school that I just thought I had to prepare myself for an alternative career um, uh, in, in biotechnology and, and all that, which was an emerging field. And I kind of overshot the, the goal and I ended up with an MD PhD scholarship and, and that's what set that road on. And then you'll appreciate as an Aussie that grew up in Brazil, uh, wife and I grew up in Santa Barbara and, and I got into Northwestern in Chicago and uh, that was a pretty rough lesson in what winter really was. I, I, I got to tell you, uh, here, living here by D.C., <laughs> The people that whine about the winter, I just got no sympathy for those folks anymore. <laughs> but um, that's another part of the story. So uh, that we kind of had to get out of Dodge with a you know a young child um, living in under those conditions and not having any money. I, I'm sure Chicago is a great place to live if you're rich, but I can mm. tell you from first person experience, it sucks to live there if you're poor. <laughs> It'd be freezing. It'd be freezing. <laughs> oh, I'll never forget standing at the corner of Lakeshore Drive with that wind coming off of the lake, trying to catch a bus, or <laughs> or or stomping up to the elevated train with the, you know, the smell of urine, um, in both directions. Uh, it just is not my idea of a good time, uh, and it was really not my wife's idea. So. Uh, so that's why we ended up in San Diego, basically. Um, in any case, a uh, lot of lot of miles under the bridge, <laughs> water to the bridge, I should say. <laughs> it's 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 hearing that story is is just because because all you hear is is people want to know how you know how and sure a lot of our listeners definitely want to know that you've you've discussed it before how you know how um, the spike proteins how it enters the cell and 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 the breakdown of everything but hearing that side of you is is it's an amazing story it's it's when you coming from that background going into into laboring we we it's like bricklayers we call it laboring here but you you guys call it building there yeah, yeah. and yeah coming from that background going across the country moving from one place to another place i follow a lot of the stoic philosophy um, of you know not so much attachment to hold calmness because if you attach yourself to too much um, it's actually 
won't make you come because the the idea of losing that stresses you out even more. So by you moving around and and um, it, it it shows a lot of humility as well, um, which. It's, yeah, it's it's something that uh, <laughs> you laugh. Is it? Am I wrong? Am I wrong in saying that? Did I say something wrong? No, you're, wrong? no. It's it's so humility. Uh, so when I was young, I was a bit arrogant. Right. Um, okay. Who I am now has been sanded down uh, through a lot of hard times. Mm. I mean, I there's been times when I've been really poor. There, there was a time when I was Amen. so poor, I was, I was literally living off roadkill. Mm. Um, you know, I, I understand poverty uh, and I understand hard times. And I, I got to say also, I've lived in Switzerland and Bern. Um, uh, you know, I, there's a, a Heinlein book. You're probably not a science fiction buff. You asked how come I'm, I, this is another part of who I am is I'm a big fan of cyberpunk, like Bruce Sterling. You know, I used to burn through science fiction like nobody's business when I was a young man. Um, And, you know, so so my wife still does, still reads uh, science fiction fantasy all the time. Uh, So that forces you to kind of stretch your brain a little bit. Uh, But so there's there's this title from Heinlein, you know, back uh, older generation sci-fi, Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, and I, I kind of feel like that describes who I am a little bit. Um, I, the culture that my wife and I came from in Santa Barbara really no longer exists. Right. It kind of all got changed when Ronald Reagan, who had his farm just a few miles down the, the road from where, uh, I grew up, Mm. uh, when he came on, in Santa Barbara, all got changed in, in Galita and everything all went upscale. It got the world's attention. You know, now we have the prince and his uh, wife uh, lives in Montecito in uh, all of that. Right. It's become it was always a, a refuge for the L.A. elite. But but the kind of the social contract was that uh, in in the culture I grew up with was that you don't you don't um gawk um and they come to santa barbara to be to fit in not mm. to be stars if they want to be stars they can go to las vegas or you know other places hang out in hollywood they mm. come to montecito and santa barbara and in the central coast to kind of just live their lives mm. um you know people like jackson brown uh um and a lot of the uh laurel canyon uh music elite um yeah. And, uh, um, so that, that was the culture back then, but now it's become, uh, you know, America's Riviera. Yeah. When we go back, it's not what it was. And when we go to Switzerland or Portugal or wherever, we're, we, we just embrace the local culture. We're not part of it. It's not part of us. We just kind of go with the flow, mm. uh, in likewise here in Virginia. So, you're right. It, it all teaches humility. Yes. And uh, if you want to get along with people, and I pride myself on being able to talk to everybody. Uh, mm. I try really hard not to come across as talking down to people. Yeah. 
And sometimes people object to that on Twitter. They're like, why don't you make this simple for me? And whatever. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to enable you to think yes. and to have the information to think for yourself and not talk down to you to say, this is what you should think, mm. but rather to give you the tools to allow you to do your own thinking. That's mm. a win for me. Um, there, there's a phrase I'm deeply wired as a leader because I lead teams and stuff. Um, but I'm a weird one. I'm not an authoritarian. I'm what they call a servant leader. So I lead by example and I lead by enabling others. Best um, and it comes from that place of humility of, mm. of recognizing, you know, having been poor, having been hungry, recognizing that whether or not you're a farmhand or a full professor, um, everybody deserves respect. And another thing that's really fundamental bedrock for me, and I've posted this a few times on Twitter, there's this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by a guy named Thomas Kuhn. And it was super influential for me. That book and uh, another one is Victims of Groupthink. But Structure of Scientific Revolutions is the book that gave us the, the words paradigm shift. Mm that whole logic. Yes. And what it teaches, if you look at the history of science and technology, is that the m most frequently of all the places in all the kind of intellectual spaces that drive innovation, it almost always comes from outsiders, not from insiders. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when I get somebody new, when I was running a laboratory and I get somebody new come into my laboratory group, I knew that there was about three months where those people would be able to see things that the rest of us wouldn't because they aren't all wrapped up in the paradigm. Mm. They, could, they could see stuff. And this is how come outsiders often are innovators is because they don't have the biases of the people that are already on the inside. And so what that teaches as far as I'm concerned is that outsiders usually don't have the special language. They don't have the secret decoder ring, but they can often see things and experience things and know things in a fundamental way that insiders can't see or know. And mm. if you're somebody who cares about innovation, um, you darn well better listen to those people. Mm. Even though they may not have the, the, the fancy degrees and uh, you know, have the card-carrying uh, special knowledge and uh, fancy words, a lot of times they can see stuff that you can't see. And so it's, it would be stupid, counterproductive, to not listen to what they have to say. And that kind of extends to everything in my life. Mm. is uh, as a scientist, I go through the world saying, hey, I don't have the answers. Um, I have hypotheses. I have all this training. But what all that training teaches me is, to a significant extent, how little we really know. Mm. So, so if I can finish with one thought on this point, um, I used to collect old medical textbooks. And as a physician, the thing about collecting old medical textbooks is that really teaches humility because <laughs> you ought to read the stuff 
that I was in those old books, you know, where they're just absolute, they use as much assurance and confidence in what they say about crazy ideas <laughs> that they do now. It's the same words, you know, and, and, uh, and it kind of emphasizes that, uh, you know, the, the awareness biology is really, really complicated. Virology is really complicated. And, and uh, vaccinology is really complicated. And we really don't know that much. Mm. And we like to think that we're big expert specialists. Uh, but the sooner, as, as soon as we tell ourselves we're the experts and we have all the answers, is when we start making really stupid mistakes. So that's, there's, there's my comments about humility. And I appreciate them very much. Me, myself, I resonate with a lot of that. I came from a farm and went to the favelas of Brazil, ended up here in Australia in this weird media space where I'm speaking to CEOs, uh, protest organizers, mothers, fathers, doctors, geniuses like yourself. And it's, it's, the, the whole expert argument that's being toted right now is an interesting one. And it's interesting that you put it in that way that from the outsider's perspective coming in because they're shunning down a lot of people at the minute. And you articulated it brilliantly just then. And you're the inventor of mRNA technology. If we do not allow for outsider's perspective, how can we look at and find alternatives if we're only seeing this through one lens. For example, in Australia, it's either this vaccine or you can't get out of your house to go. You got to show it at a coffee shop. You got to show that it is, to that is so wrong. this and that. It just, it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Is that, is that innovation moving away when they're trying to say there is only one way? Uh, there's, there's a whole, whole other hour of discussion we could have right around that one comment you just made. Uh, well, um, Paul, I do need to get you on, on the, I know, I know, I know you're a busy man. I know, I know. And people are going to be annoyed. So, Why didn't you talk about cells and, and particular items? But, I know. but let's, let's open that for a moment. Let's talk yes. about that. Okay. Um, uh, Peter Navarro, who used to work for the Trump administration, he was responsible for sourcing hydroxychloroquine and a lot of other things early on. Mm. Um, and I have been working together and we've put out two opinion pieces in the Washington Times. And if you're following my Twitter feed, you've probably seen them. Yes. One of them just uh, dropped, I think, two days ago. I think I just posted it yesterday. Um, and uh, what we lay out is what we believe, and it's frankly, it's not, I didn't come up with this. It, it reflects the thinking of many people, not the least of which is Gert Vandenbosch. So I don't want to claim, you know, I personally, I feel real burned about people that keep trying to take credit for my ideas. Mm -hmm. And that leaves me pretty focused on making sure that I give credit to other people. So there's a lot of people that have gone into this thinking, not just me mm. and not just Peter. But the, the logic is, um, and it, it tries to pull together in this middle space that we were talking about. It's not left or right, mm. right? Um, it's, it's kind of in the in-between space. Are there alternative strategies? 
So the, the proposal we have weaves together the fact that we don't have unlimited vaccine. You know, if you're, you're living in Australia, which is relatively uh, um, economically uh, developed, but if you were living in Brazil or Peru or uh, in the Pampas, uh, um, in, in Argentina, mm. uh, you don't have vaccine. You don't have the money for vaccine. If, you, if you're living in the Central African Republic, you're living in, in Central Africa, in any of those states, in the malaria belt, you don't have money to go buy fancy mRNA vaccine and buy a whole bunch of freezers and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, so you got to think about what makes sense for you. And then you've got the director general of the WHO saying, hey, Western nations, you're, you're hoarding all the good stuff. You're hoarding all the goodies. You're not sharing. Um, and that's not right. Mm. Uh, now, here in the States, we say, oh, you know, stuff it, go pound sand. Uh, we're, we, we came up with it and we get to use it and I don't care. You know, if you look right now, I'm, I, when I'm on podcasts with people from Latin America or Africa, uh, one of the things they're saying to me is, hey, from where we stand, this looks like more U.S. economic imperialism. Right. Okay. You guys are hoarding all the goodies. The director general of the WHO, not a man generally considered to be a hero in this outbreak, <laughs> uh, and and often referred to as a, as a a you know another set of vocal cords for Bill Gates. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a case to be made along those lines, but he's saying that <coughs> the West a, a should be case. sharing vaccine. <laughs> a big case. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So he's saying that the West should be sharing vaccine and protecting the elders in all of these other places. Mm. You know, Bill has made a big deal about saving lives. Mm. But um, if he's really caring about saving lives, why aren't we making vaccine available? Why isn't he buying Pfizer and forcing Pfizer and Moderna, who he has big shares in, to... Uh, make their product available to Central African nations and uh, Latin American nations and um, uh, Indonesia and other places that are impoverished mm. so they can protect their elders. So what Peter and I propose and, and is, and by the way, this also reflects, as I mentioned, Gert Vandenbosch's thinking Universal vaccination is going to drive the development of vaccine-resistant mutant viruses. Now, Australia's got a strong livestock you know, experience and cultural awareness. You guys understand that giving antibiotics to cows and feedlots or chickens or whatever drives the evolution of superbugs. Yes. Vaccines, universal vaccination especially when it's not necessary, will drive the development of vaccine escape mutants. And when that happens, when we get a super virus that is able to bypass uh, the immunosurveillance and selective pressure of spike vaccines, who's going to die? Okay. Mm. It's the elderly and the high risk. Yeah. Okay. 
So what we're doing is to many eyes, including mine, just darn stupid. We're wasting the one tool that we've got to protect the people most vulnerable by the mandating vaccination on everybody. And now we have the data showing that natural immunity is about 20-fold better in terms of protection from death and disease and durability than vaccine-mediated immunity, okay? And your probability of dying here in the States, we have one of the worst records in terms of mortality, by the way. We like to tell ourselves we have the best medicine. The data aren't showing that. Mm. Okay. Overuse of dexamethasone may be one problem. Mm. But um, we're not managing our cases very well. We're, we're absolutely blocked from early treatment. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got the government trashing uh, both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which the rest of the world is using liberally, mm. not all nations, but for instance, in Mexico, you buy ivermectin over the counter and it's cheap. Yes. They're using it in India, they're using it in Indonesia. It goes on and on Vietnam. Um, and uh, so here, here the government is actively blocking availability of ivermectin. They're not just not, uh, not making it available. They're, they're running a major campaign to try to discredit it, calling it a horse drug, which is, you know, patently absurd. That is, um, sorry, not to cut you off, but that's exactly what's happening here. We're having a massive push by the mainstream media to try and discredit ivermectin, saying it's a, it's a, it's a yeah, horse drug, it's, it's the worm drug, but- Ivermectin's been around for over 40 years. It's been administered billions and billions and billions of times on humans. It's had multiple tests and data have proven it to work fine on humans. It's not just for animals. To my understanding, you also had a company that looked at repurposing drugs and one of the those drugs was Ivermectin. Am I, am I right? And I've also, I've administered it to myself under prescription from another physician for my long COVID. Something people need to recognize is that I was infected very early in the outbreak in late February of 2020. And I developed long COVID. Um, so right. when I talk about COVID and, and these other things, it's not theoretical for me. I've lived it. Yeah. And so is my wife. Uh, so I had clinical benefit uh, for my lung COVID. Many others that I know report clinical benefit with ivermectin. Joe um, Rogan just, come, just came out. He's come yep. out and Joe support. Rogan, uh, you're, you're a doppelganger here in the United States. Uh, <laughs> I, I can only um, hope to ever be even, even mentioned as the same sentence, so I do appreciate it. He is a great mentor, but please go on, go on. Yeah, so so the the here's here's the four prong strategy that I would advise your government. Not that they're going to call me up tomorrow, but it could be that other politicians in Australia might reach out to me. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't be able to discuss that on your show. Uh, but it might happen. Um, uh, <laughs> they, they, I'm just saying. <laughs> they are nosy, the so government over there. here. I tell you what. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to make sure what we say so you don't get whacked. Yeah, watch out, watch um, out. The government is wild. <laughs> so, so 
four-pronged strategy. It's basically personalized medicine, a modern concept. Mm. Okay. So let's get out of the 20th century where, you know, I like to say uh, you probably are too young to have kids. I've raised two boys. Um, and, and I love the phrase, if you give a three-year-old a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And it's this, <laughs> this is true with uh, RNA vaccines, it seems. Um, and so they just want to bang every nail in with the same hammer. Mm. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Yes. Okay. So what Peter Navarro and I advocate is number one, use the vaccines for the people that need it most, the people at highest risk. Mm. Number two, make drugs available, allow physicians to practice medicine. Good God. Mm. Um, I mean, that talk about sense. common sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're missing that somehow. Okay. We, we lost it somehow. We need Hello. it back. <laughs> <laughs> physicians generally, you know, not politicians, uh, yes. but physicians are the ones that have been through this stupid long training to learn how to treat patients. Why don't we let them treat patients, please? Yes. Um, and there are many drug combinations and protocols using existing drugs that are dirt cheap. You don't have to use fancy new stuff from Pfizer and Merck. Um, they're, they're, you know, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, famotidine, celecoxib, uh, fluvoxamine. It just, the list goes on and on and on. Yes. And I'm sorry to say, uh, I don't like the idea very much, uh, but there are uh, there's evidence now that certain anti-androgens work really good in the hospital. Um, so, uh, you know, but they're temporary, thank heavens. Uh, so uh, <laughs> folks like yourself can appreciate what I'm saying. Yes. Uh, so uh, vaccinate the ones that really need it. Not everybody, because you're just driving the development of escape mutants by doing otherwise. And mm. plus you're, it's not ethical. Yes. You're hoarding all the goodies. Mm. Okay. Share don't be stupid. Number two, early drug treatment, let physicians practice medicine. There are plenty of early treatment protocols. You want to get that treatment on board as soon as possible. Keep people out of the hospital. Okay. The goal here is not to fix them once they're on death's door, when all the damage is done. The goal is to keep them out of the hospital. Yes. So that means early treatment, you know, get it through your brain. Yes. Um, Point number, this is easy stuff, okay? Every one of your listeners can figure this out by themselves, okay? This whole, in the States, we do this business. They go to the hospital. They say, I'm sick, doc. I'm having problems breathing. They check their blood oxygen. They say, ah, it's not bad enough yet. Go home and come back when you're really sick, when your lips are blue, okay? That's just dumb. That's not good medicine. I don't know how we got there. It's bloody crazy. Um, number three, in order for folks to know whether or not they're high risk for vaccine. And I understand you guys have got something in your constitution, in your constitution that says that people have the right to not be subjected to medical procedures unless they want to. Now, yes. am I correct on that? Yes, they can't yeah. make this mandatory only through the coercion of businesses and trying to find businesses if their employees are not vaccinated, essentially trying to force businesses to put in their policy that their employees must be vaccinated with this COVID-19 vaccine. Otherwise, yeah, in, the, in this country, it cannot be mandatory. 
So you're even better off than we are. Okay, that's fundamental Nuremberg Code stuff, Helsinki Accords. It's fundamental human rights, guys. Get with the program. Okay, people have the right to choose. I'm getting worked up now. Um, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. But but few of our few of our leaders people, need to need to hear this. People need the ability to figure out what their risk is. They also, by the way need full and transparent disclosure what the risks of vaccine are, not this half-baked, you know, um, we're not going to really tell you, little children, because you can't handle the truth stuff, okay? That is the noble lie, okay? Let's stop that crazy stuff. Let's be honest. People deserve to know the truth about what the risks are, and then they can make an informed decision about whether or not it makes sense for them, rather than just line up, bend over and take the jab and start giving me, you know, stop and shut up. Mm. Or we're going to hurt all the kids into the, I mean, the whole stadium full of kids thing really lit up the whole world. That, that was bad atmospherics. Um, somebody deserves to lose their job over that decision. hundred um, In my opinion. In my uh, humble but, opinion as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you got to give people the tools to figure out what their true risk is. Oh, we don't have those BS. Okay. We do have those. Okay. Mm. There are many tools that you can load up on your cell phone and you can type in what your characteristics are and they'll tell you what your risk of severe COVID and and death are. And by the way, for somebody like you, the probability that you're going to die from COVID is about 0.0001%. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm an old fart. Okay. I got COVID. I got, it it hit me hard and it was at a time when there was nothing out there. It's I self-treated. That's how I discovered Fomodity. Okay. But I got hit hard and I was sure that my lungs were just going to be shot to, you know, where, Mm. um, and, and I had kind of come to accommodate that reality that, that my body was messed up and I was never going to be, have the stamina I used to have. Mm. I just finished my pulmonary function testing. Guess what? I'm good to go. I'm within normal limits for a 61 year old, old fart. Um, okay. And I had COVID heart. Okay. So it, it's not a death sentence guys. Don't let the press you know, scare you with all this fear porn. Just say, no, look at the numbers, look at the facts. That's why I post those links and that information about what your true risks are. Okay. Know what your true risks are, because if you're not one of those high risk groups and you're not 80 years old um, and you're not morbidly obese, I don't think you look morbidly obese myself. Um, uh, your, your probability of death and disease and going to the hospital is um poquito. If you forgive my saying, you know, it's tiny. <laughs> I love the Brazilian. There we go. <laughs> the Portuguese comes out. It comes out. <laughs> love okay. Yes. Uh, so, so don't let them scare you. The scare is about pushing you around and controlling you. Mm. The last part to make this work. Okay. Is you have got to have the ability to test at home to figure out if you've got real infection or if you have respiratory syncytial virus or you got rhinovirus or you got allergies because they're plowing the field next to you or whatever the heck it is. Okay. Mm. 
you got to have ability to test at home so that you, when you start to come down with that cough and that feeling of shortness of breath or, or whatever, um, you can pull out your little handy dandy test kit and, or go down to the pharmacy and get one or whatever and figure out, is it real or is it just your paranoia? Yeah. So that you know whether or not you got to get to the dock and start taking those early drugs. So four things. Number one, vaccinate the elderly, not everybody, because you're just driving the development of worse virus. Number two, if you vaccinate everybody. Number two, early treatments and let docs treat patients. Come on, guys. Number three, um, uh, allow tools that you can load onto your laptop or onto your cell phone or whatever, that you can figure out what your true risk is. At this point, I'm, I don't trust the government. I suspect you don't either. And no. I don't want to give them all my medical data, no. but something that's on, on my cell phone, that's private, that allow me to calculate my risk that works for me. And by the way, it makes it so we don't have to have a massive database and have you know, the bad guys creeping into it and finding out all our information. Um, and number four, we got to make test kits available, even if they have high false positive rates, um, uh, so that people have a reasonable, you know, the way it works in, in clinical testing is your screening test is, has a high false positive. It's going to happen. Mm. Okay. And then you do a follow-up test if you come in, it says positive, then you do a confirmatory test that's more specific, and then you make a decision about whether or not to treat, okay? Um, so those four simple things is going to totally change the landscape. It's personalized medicine. It empowers you. You're in control, not the state, okay? The, the, the big bosses aren't telling you what to do. And as I understand it, that is totally aligned with the Australian constitution, which says it's your body. It's your right to decide what puts into it and what doesn't get put into it. And the state doesn't have the right to tell me what I have to do with my body. And that's where I get to this point about individual rights versus the collective. Yes. And all this talk about, oh, we got to get the jabs to protect the old folks. If the old folks decide not to take vaccine and they die, that's their decision. Okay. I don't, I'm not responsible for them. Just mm. like they're not responsible for me. You know, if yes. I, if I, if my tractor tips over into the Creek and I get smushed, do I blame it on Kubota? No, <laughs> I blame it on me getting too close to the Creek. Yes. Right? <laughs> it's my choice. Yes, 100%. And I fully agree with that sentiment. They're doing a massive push right now for the kids and children should not be even close to the conversation of these COVID-19 vaccinations. Amen. At all. Hallelujah. And you're preaching to the choir. And <laughs> and when you just said just then that uh, everyone should be essentially responsible for their own health, I just want to touch on a few points and I understand you're busy and I'll let you get back to it. Uh, just a few important points that I want to finish off with. In saying that, everyone being responsible for their own health, people would combat that and say, well, you are going to be spreading it, which then sort of 
derails the fact if 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 it's if it's everything's okay, working so here's, right. Here's it's working. Problem. Thank thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so <clears throat> that was the logic um, of a month ago. Mm. Okay. See, I told you we're we're a little behind. The waves <laughs> ripple down that, to Australia. That logic that <laughs> logic doesn't work anymore. Okay, because Delta and by the way, we've got new ones coming on lambda and mu yes. that are even more resistant to the vaccine okay mm. delta blows through the vaccination mm. your protection from infection and dis- infection and virus replication is about 60 percent on a good day some studies say 40 percent mm. okay with the vaccination so the vaccines are not what we call now this doesn't have anything to do with your reproductive health that's another question Mm -hmm. the vaccines are not sterilizing is the word we use as vaccinologists in the sense that they are they don't block the ability of the virus to replicate in your body okay Mm. so that's the sterilization that we're talking about here okay Mm. not your ability to have a baby okay Mm -hmm. so the vaccines are not sterilizing and they are leaky. That is the technical term. They're yes. leaky vaccines. They're yes. actually quite leaky. And it's getting worse because of the vaccine escape mutants that we're selecting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Pfizer has said that they think that the vaccine, the current generation vaccines may no longer really be very effective six months from now. Mm. The, the virus is evolving really, really fast. Okay. So think about it. You give you give Grandma Jones the jab, or you take the jab, mm-hmm. okay? Because your business says you got to take the jab, you know, or otherwise they're going to um, fire you. That's what um, happens. A in lot of right happening right now. Okay, so you take the jab. Let's say because you don't you don't run a podcast. You uh, you know. Got to be out on construction right now. Construction is a big thing. Coercion for construction since it's it's a big industry in Australia. So so let's say you're a construction worker and you take the jab. What does that mean? If you come in contact with somebody who has virus and you've got a 40, at least a 40% chance, if you've got a good, robust contact, you know, you go to the bar and, uh, you know, it's a little bit of kissy kissy with the girl next door to you. And she happens to be shedding virus. And by the way, she doesn't even know she's infected because she's had the jab and it protects from disease. Okay. So it doesn't protect from infection very good, but it protects from disease better. So she's walking around basically as a super spreader. Okay. Mm. And, um, and you get real friendly in the bar Okay, so there's a little exchange of body fluids one way or another. Um, And now you've got the virus because it wasn't perfectly protective. Okay. Mm. And your risk of getting that virus with these strains, if you get a good inoculum, is about 40%. In other words, if four out of 10 people are going to get infected. Mm. Okay. The other six, you know, or maybe it's eight out of, you know, maybe it's six out of 10 are going to get infected. It depends on which study you look at. Okay. But there's a pretty reasonable chance you're going to get infected. Okay. Then what? Well, the data are very clear. You will replicate virus in your body at at least the same level and have it in your nose and in your mouth at at least the same level as somebody who didn't get the jab. Yes. Okay. 
And then the probability is that your ability to transmit to somebody else next time you go to that bar or wherever, you know, if you're this uh, hypothetical construction guy mm-hmm. or the guys that you're hanging around at lunchtime with or whatever the thing is, right? Yes. Um, and you cough or, or, or you know, you, you share French fries or whatever that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or you shake their hand after having, you know, uh, eaten your dinner or whatever. Um, there's, you're going to be perfectly able to infect them because you're making just as much virus as a guy that didn't get the jab. Okay. Mm. So it's the, the CDC, the US CDC has done, they leaked a slide deck, an internal slide deck a few weeks ago. Yes. Somebody, a whistleblower, gave it to the Washington Post. Okay. And it's a complicated slide deck. You got to kind of have the secret decoder ring for epidemiology to figure it out. But it very clearly shows that the infectivity of this virus is wicked high. It's an R naught of eight, as opposed to an R naught of say two to three for the alpha variant. Okay, so it's way more infectious. It replicates at something like two hundred times the level that alpha and beta did. <clears throat> Once you're infected, it doesn't matter whether you've been jabbed or not about how much vac- how much virus you make. It actually, if you've had the jab, it makes it more likely that you're not going to go to bed mm. and, and, you know, lick your wounds for a week, um, but rather still be on that construction site um, because you're partially protected from disease. So you're not feeling as sick, but you're still making lots of virus. You're still shedding that virus. You're still at risk for infecting everybody else. Does it- and by the way, mm. it's only good for six months. Yes. That's- <laughs> um, so, you know, if, if you're, if think back to back in your days um, in, in, uh, in Brazil, yes. or as we were talking about, imagine you're in Peru or uh, a lot of other places on the high pampas. And, and uh, you know, this is a expensive vaccine and you've got to have a cold chain, which, you know, as we were discussing, I've done a vaccine project for PATH in Brazil, cold chain and getting it out into the, you talked about favelas, uh, out, mm. out in the surrounding, uh, we could gently call them suburbs, uh, uh, around the main cities, uh, that would be uh, giving them too much credit. Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but sure, we'll run um, with it. <laughs> Uh, you know, their, their idea there of a cold chain is somebody with a bike and a freezer pack sitting in the, in the basket on the back. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, and that's on a good day. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's, that's high tech. Uh, you know, this is just totally impractical Mm. and, and, uh, the, the, the gods, you know, our overlords here, I'm sorry, I'm getting worked up. No, it's fine. Um, it's our fine. overlords <laughs> are are just I don't know what Kool-Aid they've drunk. Um this is just crazy. Does it affect this your, is not this does not make sense. Does it affect your um natural immune system? For example, if you've got a vaccine against Delta and another variant comes so along. So that's a good question. And does, a lot of people are asking it. Does the vaccine have an adverse event? I can tell you one thing it does do, mm. and this is not 
This is not uh, official yet. So the fact checkers will all say, oh, but there's nothing that proves that that's the case. Well, I can tell you my buddies at FDA know that this is one of the major risk factors and complications. Mm. It's just not official yet. Okay. But, but and it was in the New England Journal of Medicine paper out of Israel comparing uh, the risks of infection versus the risks of vaccine with Delta. Um, just recently, like two weeks ago, it was yeah. published. Okay. Um, so one of the key adverse events that occurs is called viral reactivation. Well, viral reactivation, we're talking about shingles mm-hmm. and herpes yeah. and Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus and a lot of other stuff that is sitting hidden in under control in our body. Okay. Yeah. So for instance, I've, I picked up a wicked bad Epstein-Barr virus when I was a graduate student. That's a whole nother story. I mean, uh, cytomegalovirus. I got cytomegalovirus hepatitis because I was forced to, I was doing co-cultivation experiments looking at cytomegalovirus and the AIDS virus interactions. And they wouldn't let me use the full bioprotection by turning on the hoods because they thought I would blow HIV out the stacks and infect everybody in La Jolla. So that's a personal part of my story, another one. Um, and I got this wicked bad CMV infection because I was working with the hottest strain of CMV that was available at the time. And uh, um, CMV is bad business and it affects about half of the people in the world and it drives your immune system to increasingly focus on suppressing CMV. And it's probably a major cause of the phenomena that we call immunosenescence. Mm. That's a fancy way of saying old people's immune systems get burned out. Okay. Cause they're, they're busy fighting the same viruses that are sitting there just waiting to jump out and attack us. If there's some sort of danger signal. Okay. And these vaccines flip on those viruses. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean they're flipping on those viruses because they're suppressing the immune response that's otherwise keeping those viruses in control? Or is it because they're causing upregulation of certain inflammatory cytokines that are telling those viruses a danger signal that says, hey, you better jump ship right now. Viruses are like rats on the ship. Okay. And, and, you know, when they think that it's, it's time to get off ship, you know, they will, they will jump out and look for another place um, to make it oversimplified. And that, you know, there's all kinds of cool molecular biology and virology and signal transduction pathways and NF-kappa B and blah, 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 blah. But the bottom line is that they got cool ways to figure out when bad stuff is happening to their host and, and get the signal to get out of Dodge. Um, and that's happening after vaccination. Now, so is it because of the vaccines producing some immunosuppression? Is it because of the vaccines upregulating inflammatory markers? I don't know. Mm. I just know it's happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, is, is there evidence? I, I know for sure that the virus is really tweaking our immune systems. It's not so bad as AIDS, but it's, it's profoundly affecting things called T regulatory cells mm-hmm. that control our whole immune response. Is so that the I reason why? Is that uh, the is answer? Possibly why Sweden has rejected any flights coming in from Israel. I believe they're the second EU nation to reject anyone from Israel, which is a high yeah, vaccinated yeah. nation. So Jill ran that to ground. What's coming out of Sweden? So you're following my Twitter feed, and yeah, that's I raised that question. 
So my wife and partner, Jill, uh, who's also a PhD, who's a PhD and, you know, been a, a partner in this whole journey, you know, since I mentioned, since she was 15 and I was 16, no, don't ask any more questions. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> um, so in any case, she ran that to ground and, um, the, the official justification is that what's going on in, in um, Israel is that there are these pockets, I think they call them Hasidic Jews, the fundamentalist mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in Israel, and they're generally an older population, and they really don't want to take vaccine. So there's islands in Israel of populations that are not taking vaccine, yes. and they're getting hammered. Uh, and so I think that is that's one explanation for part of what's going on in Israel right now. Mm. And it's something that's not picked up by the press uh, is that there are these populations of uh, Israeli citizens that are are of a fundamentalist orientation religiously that just feel like it's not right to take vaccine into their bodies and many of them are older and they are just getting decimated mm. uh, by this Delta wave. So that's, that's at least part of the explanation that Sweden is offering is that there are a number of Israelis that are clearly, I mean, no matter what you say, whatever the explanation, there's a large fraction of the Israeli population, even the vaccinated, that are getting infected and having disease and ending up in the hospital. And as we've just discussed, the levels of virus in their bodies are no different from the levels of the ones that haven't taken the jab. Yeah. So uh, is there something special going on in Israel? I don't know. That's just one explanation. Um, but uh, so that's, that's apparently the official party line right now. I have so many more questions, especially after that last statement. I know. However, the lab leak is an interesting one for me. I'm inclined to believe the lab leak due to the evolutionary um, adaption of a virus. My understanding is that generally when virus is moving from one host to another, it's, it's small, so it can't manifest at a rapid rate unless it already knows how to do that so i'm inclined to believe the lab theory however i am not too sure as to if it is or if it isn't or so yeah please so the government on the lab leak and then let's close on that yes uh, so let's let's so here we go down the conspiracy rabbit hole is it Robert Doctor Robert Robert Redfield? Is that is that the ex CDC director, Doctor Robert Redfield? He he. Yeah, I know Bob Redfield. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I think I think he that's the. Bob, he works for Bob Gallo. Has for years. Yes. Um, remember, I was telling you about Bob Gallo earlier. Yes. yes. Something to know about Bob Redfield is uh, so. This is a fun small world thing. Bob Redfield got in trouble for basically misrepresenting data about the AIDS vaccine uh, that he had developed. Right. And, and the protection was that he was observing was actually an artifact. Mm. Um, and the army took away his money and he got in big trouble and got kicked out. My first big contract with the military, 
was I managed to grab some of that money when I was a medical intern. About a million bucks. Um, a little over a million. So so that was that was my big contract for development of AIDS vaccines, DNA vaccines for AIDS. Um, so uh, Bob Redfield is a character. Uh, as is all these people are are yeah. just characters. But in any case, uh, so you believe so it's a conspiracy. I, uh, I, I touch these guys, uh, not, not in an inappropriate way. There is an interface socket between my world and the intelligence community. Let's just leave it at that. I am yes. not CIA, but I have dealt with many CIA folk from time to time. Yep. Um, and, I, and I'm deeply embedded and have been. I think they probably, none of them will talk to me now in the world of biodefense and uh, all of that. Actually, I still work on a DITRA contract. Which is uh, fair enough, uh, as you should. You're a big part of this space and you're an intellect within it. So it makes sense that at some stage they would have reached out to you for some contract. So that's just part of what I do. Um, and uh, it's only a part of what I do, but I do deal with these people. So mm -hmm. um, there's a guy that I've co-published with uh, for years named Michael Callahan. Mm -hmm. um he is bona fide cia full-on full stop and you you may have noticed that i posted a, a piece called darpa's man in wuhan yes uh from a, this interesting website called unlimited hangout <laughs> uh that had been pulled off the web but then it got put back on again so michael is an interesting character i think a strong case can be made he is the most experienced biowarfare specialist in the united states um, he's been directly involved in gain-of-function research um, for years. And to call him DARPA, yes, he's worked for DARPA. He used to head a big program for DARPA. Um, that's, let's say, an understatement of his uh, role in the intelligence community and leave it at that. Um, Michael was in Wuhan. So I've been told that I'm not supposed to talk about this anymore, but I'm kind of like beyond caring. Um, uh, uh, by by senior people in the government uh, that officially we had nobody in country in the fourth quarter of 2019. Okay, so get that through your brain. There were no Americans in China in 2019 working for the government. Period. You understand? Those are the truth. And 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 uh, yeah, news to me too, uh, because <laughs> Michael called me from. Uh, Wuhan on January 4th of 2020 and said, Robert, you got to get your team spun up because uh, this virus that you've been hearing about is a bad one. And uh, we need you to get going on this. And I started screening repurposed drugs after having recreated the crystal structure of the papain-like protease when the sequence dropped called the Wuhan seafood market virus on January 10th. Okay. Mm. But and Michael went on to manage the Diamond Princess outbreak and a bunch of other things. He reported to a guy named Bob Cadlick, who is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, who's another uh, dark agency guy. Mm. Um, so what I know is that our most senior, most experienced uh, biowarfare specialists that we parachute into any out major outbreak anywhere in the world, uh, was in China. And if, if you think I'm lying, 
you can look at his story, which is full of misrepresentations, but it was covered by Science Magazine mm. as the, the original story for the discovery of famotidine, which I disagree with, but that's another thing. Um, okay. So Michael, Michael, by his own mouth, was in Wuhan in late 2019. And what he told the author of that story, Brendan Burrell, was he escaped Wuhan because he wasn't officially supposed to be there. He was under cover of his Harvard appointment. Um, he escaped Wuhan as the curtain was coming down on the quarantine by boat. So, you know, the Chinese, he wasn't like the Chinese government was like, oh, nice young man in white coat. Uh, we will, I'm sorry to paraphrase, I swear I shouldn't do that. <laughs> the Chinese government was not fully apprised that there was an American intelligence agency agent undercover of his Harvard appointment in Wuhan during late fourth quarter of 2019, but he was there. Okay. So when I hear the whole lab leak chatter, um, what I know is there's documentation about funding flowing from both DITRA and NIH to the Wuhan lab mm. relating to gain of function research in coronaviruses. Um, and as somebody who's worked at a primate research center, I can't distinguish between the possibility that somebody was selling carcasses or previously infected animals out the back door versus some lab tech got infected, which is by the way, how come respiratory syncytial virus got into the US pop in the world population? Mm. Okay, was a lab leak just like this where personnel got infected in Silver Spring, in DC, in the late 50s, it was working with primates. It's a crossover primate virus. So respiratory syncytial virus is another example of a well-documented lab leak. And I can't distinguish between, you know, we don't have the data to say that this was an, an intentionally engineered or an unintentionally engineered or a lab leak or a, a, an infection of a lab personnel or a purposeful uh, release, um, which a lot of people also believe. Um, there's just no way to sort all that stuff out. And in a way, it kind of doesn't matter. The mm. thing is all got us by the short and curlies now anyhow, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what happened then, um, that's interesting and important. But no one is going to disclose it because the parties that touch that are the United States and China. They both touch it. And let's just imagine Tony Fauci's, you know, Jesus comes to him in a dream and says, Tony, you got to come clean. Um, let's just imagine that as a thought experiment. And, and That's he a tough imagination, up, but yeah. <laughs> and, and he, well, you, <laughs> but yes. Um, <laughs> And, and he steps up and uh, he says to the world, okay, you got me. I'm responsible. Let's say he said that okay. just for a thought experiment. Okay. Yep. The legal impact on the United States government, not to mention the political impact would be enormous Yes, because the U S government would suddenly become liable for what's happened to the world. There's no way that either the U.S. government or the Chinese government yeah. can come clean on this. They can't yeah. do it. Okay. And to expect them to do something like that is you're living in a fantasy. Mm. 
There's no way that they can do anything other than hide the information. And I'm sorry, this this whole we're going to get to the bottom of this and I'm going to have a report from the intelligence community and the intelligence community comes back and says, oh, darn, we can't figure it out. Well, that's the end of it. Okay, they can't figure it out. Uh, Job done. You know, I'm sorry. That doesn't work for me either. Um, It's a little too convenient. Um, But, you know, that's the world we're in. This is the last thing I can tell you about that. Yeah. Okay. There is a hole in the biowarfare treaty. Okay. The biowarfare treaty prevents the development of lethal agents. It doesn't prevent the development of incapacitating agents. Right. Okay. And the deployment of incapacitating. What is an incapacitating agent? It's something that makes you so sick that you're not going to go grab your gun. you got no will to fight. Okay, that's an incapacitating agent. That is not prohibited in the biowarfare treaty. And the people in my world know that fact. Okay, so I'll leave you with that. That just blew my mind. Dr. Robert Malone, thank you so much. Uh, for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure and an absolute honor on our end. Uh, You're a great mind and a one of a kind in this world of ours. Uh, It was great to get to know you from a, at a deeper level, your past and your passions and where you come from. And hopefully we can do this face to face sooner than later. And what I've got from this is, Australia, no 80%, no coercion in the workforce, no COVID-19 vaccines for children. And let's get back to the data and the science. Dr. Robert Malone, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Be good. You just listened to the 5A Take podcast with Dr. Robert Malone. Make sure to give us a five-star rating on the platform. And please, consider leaving a review. Your review will assist us in reaching more people and bringing you more episodes. Until next time.